Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Tonight's talk is on being at the crossroads in the sense of making major life decisions. How do we go about making them? And what are some of the uh, unconscious or conscious tendencies that lead to indecision, stalling, procrastination, being completely stuck, to make big choices or to feel uncertain constantly about important choices that we are addressing. Address this talk, I'm going to unpack a little bit of some of the current theories about how we make decisions, focusing on three very, very important figures in uh, decision theory or how we make uh, choices. And um, that will lead us into some observations and then some strategies for making when we're faced with big decisions to make. Starting off, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, a famous psychologist and even more so behavioral economist, is uh, one of the most influential figures in behavioral psychology. And he's most famous for his observations on how we make choices in life. And he proposed what is certainly one of the most commonly discussed theories, which is the two systems of thinking, or as he put it in his book, thinking fast and slow. So thinking fast or fast processing is what's known as what he called system one. Uh, most of us refer to system one as intuition. Uh, intuition being automatic, unconscious, gut feelings prone to personal biases. Uh, they are used actually in 98% of, that was his guess, I mean, who knows how many really, but 98% of day-to-day -day decisions. Intuition is what's known as bottom-up processing. It employs uh, circuits from the midbrain, the amygdala, hypothalamus, hippocampus uh, play, play an enormous role, as well as right hemispheric processing. And again, it's involved in the vast bulk of the choices that we make on a day-to-day -day level. If you go to, um, if you're at your job and you're asked a question, most of the time we don't actually stop, think, analyze all the possible answers like perhaps like a chess pro, play everything out in our mind, we tend to trust what uh, answers, what thoughts, what uh, insights uh, appear. Uh, essentially, it feels like out of nowhere. We'll also make fast decisions in terms of what to order for food, uh, what TV shows to watch, what books to read, what 
uh, what uh, uh, answer uh, make choices at work in terms of if you were for for example a, uh, a designer and you were asked what kind of uh, an interior designer what kind of uh, sectional or couch or seating you wouldn't ponder and go through a slow analysis you very often would just go by what gut image popped into your mind that's intuition uh, systems two thinking is slow analytical deliberate constantly seeks more information and compares the attributes of the choices uh, that's what's known as top-down or um, it's also known as reasoning so reasoning versus intuition that's basically how it boils down and uh, so for example if you were choosing a car to buy and someone said uh, well we have two used cars here <laughs> we have a Toyota or a uh, Volkswagen uh, you if you were following your intuition you just would go with whatever uh, popped into your mind whatever just felt right there'd be an answer there you wouldn't analyze it you would just go you know Volkswagen I've always liked the look of them or my father owned a Volkswagen or my best friend had a Volkswagen bug and I always liked it so that's how you'd answer it would just be fast not thinking no reasoning just going by your gut instinct but suppose instead you said oh so you have this Toyota and this Volkswagen well I'm gonna look at the specs I'm gonna see what mileage they get I'm gonna see you know what each costs the projected maintenance costs I'm gonna see what their safety records are so you go through acquiring all this list of information and you would make this very slow choice now in the realm of financial investments people almost invariably the more money they're investing will use system two thinking they'll find out everything they possibly can about the financials of a company their marketing evaluation their capital their you know the structure of uh, you know how the company blah 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 they'll look at projections and all that so they'll want as much information as they get but um, sometimes uh, people will just make those decisions by gut they'll just go oh well I hear Apple is a good stock I'll just buy that you know that's not that's not analytical slow thinking that's fast intuitive so according to common both systems intuitive and analytic or or intuition versus reasoning are error prone Kahneman was very pessimistic to a degree about the ability of human beings to make any kind of reasonable uh, accurate decisions um, for Kahneman noted all these kind of unconscious biases what are also known as fast heuristics that interrupt our ability to make wise choices whether the choices are based on intuition or whether they're based on uh, slow analytical thinking a, a classic example of um, one of the examples that Kahneman might use himself is what's called anchoring bias so if I walked up to you and said I have a great coat I will sell you for two hundred dollars 
unless you just happen to be in the mood for a coat and you were cold and something like that and you desperately need it, you might very well say, no, it's not really what my plans were or I don't really want to spend $200 or whatever. But if I said, or if a store said, um, this coat used to cost $500, but now just for today, you can have it for 200 well, suddenly the same coat for the same price seems far more attractive and you'd very well might think give it far more thought or you might even buy it. So the anchoring bias, when we think we're getting some kind of deal, actually skews the way we think, whether slowly or quickly. Another example Kahneman gave is how uh, human beings are loss averse. We will, for example, uh, people will buy, I guess, an apartment or a house for a certain amount of money. And uh, if the area starts going downhill or if they don't need it, they'll um, hold on to it rather than sell it for a loss and then wind up accruing even more losses. For some reason, human beings just don't like to actualize losses. So people will, I gather, uh, I'm not a real investor type, but people will invest in stocks and they'll buy it for a certain price and then they'll start tanking, but they won't, they'll hold on to it uh, because they put money into it and they won't sell it. Or I, I, I remember when I would play cards and everybody would have to put in an ante and then you get terrible cards, but you there'd be this thought like, oh, I had to put in this ante. <laughs> Maybe I should pay a little bit more to see another card. Maybe my hand will get better. So all of that is what's uh, some of the ways Kahneman noted that we just constantly make poor choices. But that's not the end of the story. Gerd Geigerenzer, a famous German psychologist, completely uh, argued against Kahneman, uh, Kahneman's view. And he noted that very often we get things right. And moreover, he said we most often get things right when we use fast, intuitive thinking rather than slow, analytical thinking. His book, Gut Feelings, uh, in many ways was a contradiction to Kahneman's work and showed all the different cases where people get it right when they trust their gut. And he used all these wide-ranging examples of bettors who don't know anything about the sport they're betting on, and they'll outperform very, very reasoned analytical bettors because they'll simply go by, by their gut, and the gut what we call feelings actually uh, represents, as we'll see, uh, all of the all of our experiences amassed into very quickly and integrates our life experiences into a single answer. So why is it that somatic markers, as we'll call them, are so or gut feelings are so so often right, according to Geigerenzer? Well, to that we have to bring in the work of the great Antonio Damasio, as well as Tranel and Beccara, and the theory goes like this. Throughout the course of our life, we have emotional experiences, events that trigger either happiness, positive feelings, or negative feelings. And every time there's an emotionally charged experience, 
we create what's known as implicit memories. These memories are stored unconsciously. I don't know why I'm po pointing to my belly. It's actually a, the stored up in the brain unconsciously as essentially linking of situations and how we felt about those situations. So, for example, uh, when I was a child, um, when I had done things right and when my parents were especially in a good mood, uh, they would let me eat pizza or grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, and so those experiences, those food stuff would bring feelings of joy, feelings of ease, feelings of comfort. On the other hand, I remember often being uh, kind of um, told repeatedly against my will that I had to eat cooked vegetables, especially cooked carrots. And so cooked carrots in childhood evoked feelings of being under pressure, having to do something we don't want, uh, essentially having choices made for me that I didn't like. So now in adult, in adult life, when I'm at a restaurant and I'm looking at the choices of things to eat, what will happen is if I ever encounter cooked vegetables, it will evoke, based on those childhood experiences, negative feelings in my body. That's what's called intuition. And I will say, no, <laughs> I'm not going to order that. Thank you very much. It could be delicious, but I just will not eat any cooked carrots or most cooked, a lot of cooked vegetables. Some I like, but not many. Um, on the other hand, if I'm at a restaurant and anything has warm cooked cheese, like a grilled cheese sandwich or pizza or something like that, it will far more evoke positive feelings in my body. So essentially the way this works is throughout life during emotional events, if we have strong feelings, those feelings, positive or negative, are stored with the memory of the situation or what we were uh, consuming in that situation. Essentially, the situation and the feeling are linked together in memory as implicit unconscious memories. Now in our present life, when we face a choice, the way we make decisions by intuition, believe it or not, is we actually, as we would look through a menu or face a big choice in our life, we visualize each possibility very quickly so fast we might not even be aware that we're using images and then our bodies based on past responses quickly give fast feedback or the unconscious mind based on the the whatever experiences in the past we the new visuals of the new choices are there and the, the body will feel different sensations, sometimes nothing, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. And we go with the positive, whatever evokes a positive feeling, and we don't go, we don't choose whatever creates a negative feeling. In fact, to prove this, this hypothesis, um, they did some wonderful uh, experiments with individuals who couldn't read 
their somatic marker, the essentially feelings in their bodies. People who had had um, uh, lesions in their ventral medial prefrontal cortex, people who had been paralyzed in certain regions who couldn't read the front of their bodies and so forth, and therefore could not read their gut feelings when they were making decisions. And lo and behold, what um, Beccara and Tranel and Hannah Damasio found was that those individuals either couldn't make choices at all, they would simply be stuck reasoning them out but would never be able to make a decision, or they would make very, very poor choices. But they found that the key influential factor in making almost all human decisions was our gut feelings that are based on earlier emotional events of our life. So once again, past emotional events link experiences or the images of experiences with feelings. In the present, new images are held in our mind if they remind us of past experiences, then the old feelings will be evoked in our present body, and those feelings will determine uh, how we respond. If you'd like to read more about this and, prob and probably get a clearer um, insight into the somatic marker theory, you can simply look it up or you could read Damasio's Descartes' Error, which is a fascinating, well-written book. So in this theory, the only role for slow analytical processing, analytical, slow reasoning, schematic thought, is simply to stall. It doesn't actually make choices for us. It stalls until we can get more images to hold in mind and that maybe those images will help us make choices. So for Damasio and many others, the role of slow analytical thought is simply to inhibit choices or put them off until we can simply acquire more images to hold in mind and that those images maybe will evoke clearer feelings that will follow. Interestingly, all of this was actually predicted by the Buddha who said in um, his core teachings, all things, this is in the Root Sutta, all things are shaped by feelings. All things, perceptions, decisions, are shaped by feelings. The word for feelings in the Buddha's time was Vedana. And in his core theory of human psychology, known as the Paticca Samuppada, the Buddha said that early life experiences known as Nama Rupa shape feelings and then feelings determine our impulses and our choices and our thinking. So the Buddha was actually very, very much in line with the uh, somatic marker theory of uh, Damasio. The Buddha was less sanguine on the value of following feelings than um, Gerd Geigerenzer and others. The Buddha thought that the best time to make choices was in the absence of strong positive or negative feelings. He suggested waiting until feelings were less uh, marked 
so that we would be less influenced by our past and be more capable of facing each moment with a set of fresh eyes. But I think Damasio would counter argue, well, that's not really possible because feelings always at the end of the day make the decision. So whatever you, whatever you think is right, that's fine. Um, I will note that due to early traumatic or wounding events, certain uh, areas of our life, feelings can lead us in, towards catastrophic results. So whenever somebody says, trust your gut or go with your gut, as a blanket statement, I always fear for them. Because almost every human being has arenas in which their feelings will fail rather spectacularly. For example, individuals who grew up in secure attachment schemas with parents who were happily and fruitfully bonded and who had really secure bonds with their caregivers very well might trust their feelings about when they meet individuals in romantic situ situations for who to be their partners. But invariably in my work uh, as a Buddhist spiritual counselor, Buddhist psychotherapy and so forth, in my work uh, I meet with countless individuals who through repetition compulsion keep making the same bad choices in relationships, keep unconsciously being drawn to emotionally unavailable or intimate averse people because in their early childhood, they either had, they either had parents who had very flawed, uh, unreliable marriages or because their own attachments with their own caregivers was in some way marked by attachment disturbances. Another example might be people who are who constantly make the wrong choices in how to invest their money. Well, notoriously, people who grew up in family systems where money was always a stressor and uh, was always associated with either conflict or drama, such people will be unduly influenced by fear and all their somatic markers will be skewed by fear and they're very often will make very, very needlessly, um, they'll keep their money, for example, in just in situations that are not uh, in any way going to be of, of long-term value for them. Um, children <coughs> who were bullied often grow up to be people who at work will feel strong intuition never to speak up, to be small, to hide, and to doubt their abilities and so forth and so forth. So um, there are areas in life where due to early childhood traumas or disturbances are um, the trusting our gut leads us to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And if that's the case, it's always wise to run our decisions by people uh, other than ourselves because they won't have the same degree of fear or the same history of attachment wounds, assumedly. And so hopefully they'll give us insight that might be in some way uh, demonstrative and making better choices. So also people with impulse disorders, bipolar, borderline, OCD, obsessive ideations, 
uh, are also prone very often to excessively trust their intuition to the extent that they will make snap judgments that can have very, very long-lasting implications on their life. And always, anyone with any disorder should always run their choices by, by people who uh, not only are trustworthy, but people who feel the permission to say, hey, that's a bad idea. Now, for the, assuming that you don't identify or your, the choices you're making are not in an area that you constantly make bad choices. So someone who constantly has, winds up in terrible jobs or terrible relationships or who moves from one place to another and doesn't feel like they're ever at home. Uh, if you do fall into those categories, again, stop making decisions <laughs> and start running them by others who might have and start trusting in the inside of a support, uh, a group of supportive friends. But suppose we're making a, a big decision, career, where to live, about a relationship, whether to stay in a relationship or leave a relationship. Suppose we're making a big choice, you know, quitting a job or staying in a job, and we we don't have a long history of repetition compulsion where we make bad choices. So we want to trust our gut, but how do we do that in the most efficient way? Well, one is that due to evolution, fear plays far too influential a role in intuition. It misrepresents the level of our safety and capabilities. I remember uh, at, an er at a very anxious period earlier of my life, uh, about uh, 30 years ago, I stuck in a job for a very long period of time and really didn't like it at all. And even though I had the skills and anyone in my shoes would have had the reasonable expectation that if I quit my job, I would find another. But my fear do, of quitting, it, the gut feelings would be so tense and so tight in my body. And, and I would translate that fear into thoughts of I'll never find another job. I have to stay in this miserable situation where I'm unhappy and unfulfilled and I, I just hate going to work every day. And I just kept at it simply because of that old evolutionary installed fear of making big changes. And understandably that that evolution installed that for us because in the the history of our species uh, we were constantly vulnerable the times we were most vulnerable were when we would suddenly pack up leave situations and become nomadic because the food sources had run out or because an area was too dangerous but in packing up and moving and finding a new place to inhabit was the times when historically our species was the most vulnerable to being picked off, to starvation, to disease, to everything. The, the worst uh, events possible were most likely to happen when people were making big changes. So making 
changes, especially in jobs uh, and employment, uh, also relationships and so forth, can invoke an outsized sense of, oh, if I leave this, I will never find anything ever again. I'll be out on my own. I'll be homeless or whatever. Another uh, outsized fear that <coughs> can play an undue influence in decision-making is concerns about how we'll be perceived by others. Another evolutionary holdover for the bulk of human evolution, uh, we'd spend most of our lives in the company of a very, very few, um, you know, small group of people. Maybe we'd spend our entire lives with six or seven other adults. The average human being, even during the pandemic, walking, you know, outside for a walk still probably sees more people than our ancestors would see in months and months, if not years, of their life. So deeply wired into us is an over-concern about how we'll be judged or how we'll be uh, appraised by others. And so when we're making big decisions, thinking about how other people will regard or whether our choices will be popular can also play a needlessly outsized influence that doesn't necessarily point us in the right direction. Finally, in terms of fear, another category that creates outsized poor decision-making is to visualize uh, out of pure speculation what our future self might look like. So, in other words, if we're making a choice about where to live, we might visualize ourselves living first in uh, Portland versus San Francisco. That seems to be the choice of so many people I know when they're thinking of leaving the East Coast, it's always Portland or San Francisco. Uh, so that you might visualize Portland, or, but very quickly we'll let go of the image and we'll start saying, but, you know, uh, what will my life be like? Will I be able to find work in San Francisco or Portland? Will it be too cold? Will uh, I know anyone, et cetera, et cetera. And while the, some of these considerations are useful, many times getting lost in speculative, future-oriented, self-oriented thinking activates the default mode network of the brain and will trigger undue fear and stall, lead to stalling and inability to decide because both choices will create negative somatic markers. Um, so that's how fear can, and we'll talk about, by the way, the strategies of how to make choices without tripping uh, historical fear or self-oriented, uh, uh, the activation of the ventral medial circuit and the amygdala and all that, that creates even more fear. Another area that skews thinking, although this time it skews slow analytical thinking, is consideration of financial rewards, status, or achievement. Due to the ventral tegmental uh, dopamine circuits in the left hemisphere, we are all constantly over-appraising the happiness that uh, accruing more money 
or attaining some kind of uh, graduate cer certification or degree or milestone will imbue us with. That's again due to a very old circuit that in evolution rewarded human beings for uh, always gave uh, dopamine rewards for any kind of status that any kind of any kind of action that enhanced our status. So all in all these tendencies can make making important decisions very difficult to make because the outsized role of fear can essentially create negative somatic markers associated with each choice. And when there's no clear positive somatic marker of each choice, it creates a negative feeling in the body, then people will procrastinate. They'll engage in excessive deliberation. They'll stall making decisions. They'll go back and forth. They'll do things that don't help. They'll write out obsessive lists. They'll journal obsessively, all in the hope that they're rational analytic mind can somehow rally and make the choice for them. But as we saw from Damasio, that doesn't work because if all of the feelings of each choice are negative, then we'll be essentially incapacitated. We won't be able to make a decision. So what do we do? Well, the first is rather than visualizing through speculation what a future choice might look like, it's actually helpful and also running the running the process in thoughts and ideas. The decision-making mind works from images, not from concepts. Again, the, the fast system one, gut feelings, intuition that make really our choices in the end are much more to, uh, uh, influenced and also work with images, visualizations, images, rather than ideas. So one thing we could do is choose the right images to represent each choice. Rather than trying to figure it out, uh, rather than trying to analyze or, you know, try to write pros and cons, all of which uh, eventually won't really make the decision for you anyway, find the most accurate images that show each choice, what each choice will look like. So, for example, if one is thinking be between staying in one's job or quitting, and pursuing an entirely different domain, one knows what one's job looks like and what the tasks are, but we wouldn't necessarily look like, know what the, the other occupation looked like. So what we would wanna do is first, through research, through connecting with people who actually do that work, we would actually want to get as much experiences with this new possibility. So if I was uh, thinking about um, possibly becoming an orthodontist, God forbid, I would actually go and hang out with an orthodontist. 
I would ask to see if I could speak with one. I would ask to see if I could visit their office. I would ask to see if I could volunteer at their place. I would actually, uh, I would do as much research as I possibly could to fill my mind with resonant images. And those images would help me make a choice uh, between the two. If, on the other hand, I simply visualized what I think being an orthodontist would look like, I will, one, eventually trigger the default mode operating system of the brain. My right amygdala will be activated. I'll start to feel fear because eventually future, all future self-oriented thinking can, turns into fear, and I won't do it. And probably good that I'm not going to become an orthodontist, but in general, that would needlessly make us frightened of making a big change in our life. So again, if it's about moving from one place or a pl deciding where we would want to go and we have an opportunity to travel, rather than writing pros and cons lists down, again, ideas don't activate somatic markers, what we would do is look online for as many different videos representing each city we're thinking about, what life is like there. We'd want to get actual images because that's how human beings make decisions, through images, not through ideas. Secondly, consider the choices based on our past experiences rather than through guessing what each opportunity might bring. So if it comes to deciding what we want to do next for work, instead of first, you know, thinking about what kind of jobs sound good, which ver will very often lead to complete indecision because, you know, just naming jobs or careers will not evoke any somatic markers. What we would do is reflect on our past. What events, what situations, what endeavors did we experience the greatest sense of self-esteem, what uh, self-worth, what enacted our highest sense of self. And knowing from this, we might reflect on, okay, what possible lines of work are closest to those past experiences that produced feelings of um, of well-being, feelings of immersion, feelings of self-esteem, and most importantly, uh, uh, endeavors that we could effortlessly focus our attention on. That's a huge thing. People are happiest when they are most present and most focused on their endeavors. So when considering a future, uh, it's most important to know that it's in some field that we will be totally engaged with, that we will not be bored, that it's, in, it's something that in the past we've seen has always invoked interest, immersive attention, because that's when people are happiest and most fulfilled. Um, the Buddha talked about when making decisions to relax the somatic markers that are extreme. And for him, it was very important to 
go into each decision with a body that was as relaxed and peaceful and what he called neutral Vedana. If we go into making decisions from a place of stress or a place of unhappiness or a place of excessive joy, then we will be either too optimistic or too negative about the choices we make. So for the Buddha, it was important to uh, essentially, in his uh, theory of Paticca Samuppada, to the way that he said we escape the undue influence from the past, is wait until the feelings from past experiences uh, fade, and then hold the choices in mind, and then allow a different new set of feelings to arise. Fine. And so, um, I could go on, but I realized that that's a lot. And I think it would be better right now if we actually put these practices into play in an actual practice so that you get to have a sense of how we can make big decisions in a way that's very different from, uh, I think, the processes that most of us employ to make important choices in our life. So, um, yeah, let's stop there and let's find a comfortable seated position or a position where you're lying down or you're just comfortable. If you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, as always, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And uh, on our websites, there's a PayPal button if you like. Closing the eyes. into settling in, bringing your attention into the body. Try to let go of everything we've just talked about and all the events from the day. We're going to try to first clear out all of the built up internal feelings from past experiences of the day. And we're going to do that by bringing our attention to neutral sensations that we really don't have to put very much effort into holding an awareness. So one of the easiest ways to relax and clear out uh, the karmic residue of not only the day, but the events of the week and recent experiences so that they don't play an undue influence on making a decision or a choice. 
would be to find in your actual set of present time sensations an impression that is neither extremely positive nor extremely negative, something in fact that's neutral. So for me, the, the sounds from the street, I can hear people passing by beneath my window, uh, talking and then silence. And then the distant sound of Brooklyn traffic. And the point of using sound, for example, as a meditation object that's neutral is to not focus on any specific sensation, any specific sound, just let each sound arise and pass, not resisting sounds as they occur, not not embracing a specific sound and wondering about it. So, for example, if I hear people talking, I don't try to make out what they're saying or guess what they're talking about. I just listen and then let the sound pass and then whatever new sound replaces it. And then that arises and then that sound will pass and then another one, another. So I'm not holding on to anything. And I'm also paying just as much attention to times of silence or when I don't really hear anything distinct. And then we could also do this with sensations in the body. We could simply become aware of the body as a amalgamation of flickering sensory events, sometimes positive feelings of a muscle group relaxing, maybe shoulders unwinding, maybe um, eyes settling, stomachs softening and releasing, or maybe sometimes the sensations are unpleasant, a pain in the neck, tension in the back, tightness in the belly, a sense of, of uh, clenching in the jaw. Just let sensations arise, present themselves, just note them, just stay with each presenting sensation as long as the sensations are strong. And then when they start to pass, just bring your awareness back perhaps to your breath, knowing if you're breathing in or out, or just an overall awareness of the, the cosmos of sensations that comprise the body.
trying not to visualize the body though while we're doing this practice just feel body sensations like stars flickering in a night sky so if there's a sensation that feels like it's somewhere on your arm don't try to locate it let go of an image of your arm and just feel it as just some events occurring in the vast landscape of your body vast, vast landscape I should say of our internal experience so let's just sit in quiet for a little while and just try to let all of the momentum busyness of the past dissipate allow the body to come to a complete standstill nowhere to go nothing to do really land in this moment and then this moment and then the next moment not holding on to anything not getting lost in thought just keep bringing your awareness back to sounds or body sensations just really try to relax into this practice
So at this point, let's practice perhaps not bringing to mind at first the most overwhelming or pressing or difficult choice we might face. If there's something that feels perhaps a little manageable, just to give an idea of how we might go about employing and using the resources of the fast heuristics of the brain to make, to help us make decisions. So bring to mind any choice that you are facing or could face that feels right for this moment in our practice. And so first, just hold an image, if you can, if you can refine each possible choice to an image that you could hold in your mind, not an idea, but an image. So if it was about leaving one's job, for a possible new occupation, one might hold different images in mind representing what we've experienced about these new possibilities. See if you could bring actual experiences from the past to represent each choice. And then without analyzing it any further, see if any choice has a clear, demonstratively, noticeably, preferable feeling evoked. Again, feelings are not unimportant. They're in fact reflecting our entire emotional history in a very fast. All of our experiences, emotional experiences from the past are quickly rifled through and presented with somatic markers feelings of tension in the stomach or ease, feelings of tension or, or relaxing in the shoulders, the throat, the tightness or release of the skin, the slight changes in facial expressions, maybe a jumpiness of anxiety in the mind or settledness in the mind. All of these are the different varied ways that gut feelings express bottom-up fast circuits.
holding the images in mind one by one and then observing the feelings that arise. Not trying to figure it out, not trying to analyze, not spinning out on the future possibilities, just use images to activate the entire history of our lived experience. And then second, another process might be we might consider which actions, which events, which situations of the past, when we think about self-esteem, or when we think, when we hold in mind the idea of just being totally immersed, totally engaged, what images come to mind? From the past, what images are evoked when we think of being truly interested, fascinated, engaged. And if any images come to mind, those images then are like almost like signs indicating which choices we could make in the present. When we think about the times in our life we were happiest, most engaged, most fulfilled, whatever images arise, then ask ourselves, what choice could I make that can bring me closest to that, that time when I felt most fulfilled? So at this time, I'm going to, in a moment, ring the bowl. And I hope that this practice was in some way of some value to offer a different process of making decisions that will be less uh, prone to excessive fear, rumination, stalling, procrastination, and so forth. And when you hear the sound of the bell, just slowly, at your own pace, just return to an awareness that's both observing external sensations as well as internal sensations. <laughs> 